And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Thursday, April 22nd. Derek Van Riper here with a guest from Rotowire, from Masters Ball, and from ESPN Fantasy. You also hear his voice on SiriusXM, both on the Fantasy Channel as part of Rotowire's rotation of hosts and on MLB Network Radio, along with Clay Link on Saturdays in the 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern window, I believe, is when that show runs. It's Todd Zola. How's it going, Todd? Hey, DVR. Doing well. Yeah, the, the Saturday show, I think they time it around whenever games they broadcast. So it kind of moves around every week. We need to check it and tweet out the right time, 4 to 5, 5 to 6, depending upon the games. There you go. All right. At Todd Zola on Twitter to follow him for yep. all of his musings and to keep up on that schedule, which it's really cool to have a fantasy presence on a league channel. It's something that uh, we did yeah. not have back in the day when I worked at Rotowire. I worked there for 13 years. But originally, Sirius XM or Sirius Home Plate or XM Home Plate, I forget the actual branding, but the Home Plate channel was the main baseball channel years ago. That was the old Jeff Erickson show, like the original show that the Rotowire guys were working on was all the way back on that channel before it was the league channel. Yeah, Jeff was on for baseball. John Hansen did football. And eventually, it was, what, it was a 10-year anniversary. So around 10 years ago, the, uh, the the fantasy channel started. So that was fun. I was sort of Jeff's. Uh, he knew he could call me at any time to get me on as a guest when the other guest canceled. Uh, pinch hitter for uh, for Mr. Erickson there. Actually, the first year, Jeff was the analyst. I, uh, it was a guy out of Baltimore. Uh, I think the last name, Phil Wood, maybe, mm. uh, was the, the host. And Jeff was the analyst. And Jeff took over the following year as the lead. It was kind of cool. It was weird because they would uh, they would replay it. So back in the day, I was that was that was the year I was going to the gym, actually. So I'd do the interview in the morning, and I'd get in the car and hear the replay, replay of it like at 3 in the afternoon. It's like, whoa, that's me. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah, that was before podcasts were really oh, a yeah. thing for most of us. I mean, maybe there were some really early adopters back then, but uh, hearing yourself was actually pretty difficult to do uh, 10 yes, plus years still ago. Is. Still is. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about because we're right. in the fun but challenging part of the early season where we want everything to mean something. We want to make moves. <laughs> we want to make pickups. We want to make trades. And we want to use all the toys in the box, right? We want to use StatCast data. We want to use all the information we have and try and discern some sort of meaning uh, as we look at making moves. And I know we spoke late last season about how to handle 2020 with respect to projections. And there were a lot of unknowns at that time about what the early part of this season was going to look like, right? Well, we spoke last September. We didn't know if spring training was going to start on time. We didn't know if we were going to have a, a 162-game season. At that point, you know, vaccines and all the things that have got us to where we are right now, like that was all still sort of up in the air last time we spoke on this show. What did you end up deciding to do as you factored 2020 into your 2021 projections? 
All right. So it seems like so long ago at this point. Yeah. Um, I, I, I made some mathematical adjustments, kind of nerdy accounting for the geographical schedule. I ran some numbers to try to figure out how easy it was for the central division teams, if you will, and the requisite adjustments to as if their numbers as if they faced the rest of the league, what their numbers would have been. So when you roll that into the baseline of projections, it's, it's you're back on an even keel. So that was a lot of, I don't know, hand-waving. But it, it, it's difficult to do because it's not as easy as looking at the Wobas or OPS or whatever you want to use and going top to bottom because there's literally three different leagues last year, right? I mean, there were some trades within the leagues, if you will, but there were three different leagues. So you, you can't just – you can't take the AAA OPSs and rank them with the major league OPSs and say this team's better than that team because different leagues. And even though it's major leagues, it's the same idea. So it was a little difficult, but we did that. Similarly, it went well. When we, I think we all thought there'd be a DH. So originally it was adjusting the NL pitchers from 18 and 19 as if they faced a DH, again, to have the baseline the same. Turned out that wasn't the case. They had to rake the, the adjustment back, and the adjustment back was having the 2020, 2020 pitcher numbers from the NL as if they didn't face a DH. So this is all just to get normalization. And then it was just uh, trying to figure out playing time, trying to figure out pitching, innings, et cetera, and reevaluate how to dis- distribute saves. But it was a couple of nerdy just to get the baselines for pitching on the same keel as the, uh, whatever the DH was going to be. Yeah. So it was a mess to, uh, <laughs> well, there, yeah, it was that I could have saved a lot. <laughs> and said it was a mess. But the, the main reason I wanted to kind of step back and, and ask that question and start thinking about the 60 game season a little bit is that we're dealing with a sample to begin the season right now. We've got less than a third of a 60 game season in the book so far. And despite that, the sky is falling and some players have taken these massive steps forward and we're, we're trying to, to make these declarative statements about what's going to happen going forward again because we want all these things to mean something. Now, I, I think the, the big issue you've taken in the past, and this also came up last time we spoke, is the misapplication of stability points. We look at stats and at various points, they stabilize. And in the past, I know I was among the people that thought that meant that the player more or less owned that skill going forward. So, you know, if we're at the point where a hitter's strikeout rate had stable, said stabilized, and it had been previously 30%, but it dropped down to 20% over the stabilized sample, my belief was that the new skill, the current skill going forward, was a hitter with a 20% strikeout rate. And that is wrong. That is a misapplication of what a stabilization point is. Can you walk us through how we got it wrong and how we should actually utilize stabilization points? By we, I'm going to say I too, because I, I, you know, was exactly where you were before I read that the gentleman, Russell Carlton, who I could have invented stability points, has pointed out that we're all doing it wrong. And to correct just a little bit too, now to do the math, what I would do is at the 30 and the 20, the stability point is uh, supposed to be when the point when within the data is half luck. So I, I call it a, a 
I did average it and make it 25. But even so, that's wrong. The, you know, again, AKA formerly known as Pizza Cutter, now Russell Carlton, and all this stuff's on the web. The same place that people got this information, they can now get the fact that it's wrong. But for whatever reason, it's taking a lot longer for people to understand that or believe it. Because I, I think I, I wanted to believe that I was cutting edge and this <laughs> 25% regressing it was beautiful and we could use 60 plate appearances for strikeout rate and get a new get a new baseline. But unfortunately, we can't. What it, in short, the luck to skill ratio within those 60 plate appearances is 50%. It does not mean that the next 60 plate appearances it's going to be the same. It's just within that within that singular sample, it was fifty percent luck, fifty percent skill. And every in my, my I thought and what I assumed was, okay, the next sixty are going to be the same, and the next sixty. That is not the case, unfortunately. Now, the one thing we can say is, and and, and Mr. Carlton said it said so much in the piece that he kind of refuted uh, what was going on. The points that the skills that have short and actually the word stabilization is kind of a it's misleading. Just you call it stabilization because it's it's even even within that sample, it's not stabilized. It's still 50-50. But so stabilization is kind of a misleading term to begin with. But anyway, uh, those that have these shorter stabilization stabilization points probably do actually truly stabilize faster. But the point being, we just don't know exactly when, because I've been looking and and I haven't found the study that said, okay, we got it wrong. This is right. I haven't found, is it 300, 350? I don't know. I'm making up numbers, but I just strike out, stabilize faster than walk, stabilize faster than going on down the line. We just don't know that the actual end point of when it, when you could actually call it stabilization. So I think th- this is a reason why early season player analysis is so difficult. I think it could be difficult for someone like Jazz Chisholm, who's off to a great start, right? Showing power, he's stealing bases, he's walking a little bit, and he's striking out a lot, but that was sort of expected based on his profile and what he did in the upper levels of the minor leagues. Uh, I think it's even more difficult when we're talking about a player like Akil Badu because we're talking about a Rule 5 pick who last played at high A that season was cut short by an elbow injury, so we don't even have a full season of high A for him. And of course, he then doesn't play in the minors in 2020 because no one did. Skips over double A and triple A, comes up and starts hitting for power right away. And maybe we're seeing that correction already. Maybe it's easy to see that Badu striking out 38% of the time is you know, a good first week story, but is really a rule five pick and a guy that the Tigers are going to have to bring along very carefully uh, I don't necessarily want to dig into Badu much because I think that's a little easier to figure out with the big gap and how they got him and all that. But with Jazz Chisholm or with any player like this where we have a more complete picture, a more normal picture of player development because it wasn't a completely lost 2020, when do you start to dig into that profile and say, okay, I I believe this is real. There's certain aspects of what he's doing that you will believe in sooner than others. Well, I believe, I mean, I, I do believe in the strikeout rate, et cetera, sooner. It's just, I can't, it's just so cool to say after 60 plate appearances or 40 plate appearances, it's like three weeks. We just have to calm it down. So I, I, always, I continue to, I always look at those and I still do rest of season projections and regress strikeout rate faster than the others. I just, I, it just, it's not as, um, 
not as stringent as I just kind of make up my, my endpoints and who knows if they're right. But uh, again, you know, it doesn't sound very scientific and it's really not, but for someone like Chisholm, it's, you, you want, it's all, it's all about the adjustments. It's all about the league adjusting to him and him adjusting back to the league. What I'll, I like, you know, I can't do this on everybody, but if I'm asked on Chisholm or I have Chisholm on a team, I'll look at, is he getting, is it, is it heat that's getting him beat? Is it breaking stuff that's getting him beat? Is he making adjustments to one or the other? Is he getting beat on high stuff? So I try to find out what it is that's getting beat because teams are already doing this. And that's why they're, you know, like trying to, a local example, Michael Chavez just couldn't lay off a high fastball and teams are just continually beating him on the high fastball. And until he made an adjustment, I was staying away from him. Then he, kept getting beat by sweeping sliders. So and this is why he's now on the alternate site. Uh, teams kept adjusting. So let's see what happens with Chisholm. Uh, I don't know. I haven't done the deep dive yet to be able to tell you that it's he's getting beat on on sliders or, or whatever it might be. So the, the tough players are the ones that are just getting beat on everything. But you, you try to – you hope you find something that you can narrow, narrow it down and, all right, let's see how he does against this. All right, well – He's getting beat by fastballs. This pitcher is a good fastball pitcher. I can use him tonight in DFS or in my in Otno or whatever you have as a daily league, something like that. But it's I don't know that there's an actual date. It's just an ongoing process, and it's kind of a player by player, a feel thing with each individual metric. How it's uh, I just don't get so granular as to new, put it in my calculator and come up with a new projection. It's kind of just a feel thing. Yeah, and I think that's something that drives a lot of us a little bit crazy. Like we want yeah. it to be perfectly scientific. We want the yes. numbers to steer us to the answer, but the unfortunate reality, and I think this will be true for as long as you and I are playing this game, is you will have to make some decisions without the benefit of numbers that are statistically locked in. Like you're just going to have to take some leaps sometimes based on what you see watching games, what you see in how teams are treating a player, it, whether it's the way opposing teams are treating him or even the way his own team is treating him with, in terms, with the, the role of playing time and where they're hitting in the order and different matchups they trust the player in and matchups they don't. I mean, I think it, it kind of, in a weird way, I've said this on a few other, pla a few other podcasts at various points, I, I believe in the draft skills, not roles mantra as a, a foundational sure. starting point, right? Like if you're choosing between two players, draft the guy with the better skills. That's the way to go. But you do need to account for role. You do need to take in those different factors. I think that is a bigger part of a player's value over the course of a season than we probably want it to be. Yeah, well, I, yes. And we'll just to adjust the point about one in the numbers – and with the StatCast data, we now think it's a, a false security blanket. We think we now have the data to answer our questions. Sorry, friends, we don't. But as far as the draft skills, it, to me, it's draft skills, not roll. But draft enough players that you have choices. And in season, it's start the guys with the roles, right? Yeah. It's, 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 so I think, I think you need to draft the skills. But in season, you obviously you, know, you play the players that are playing, and is there some? Yeah, you have to when you make when you do your draft, you have to give yourself enough play, players to choose. You know, therefore they have to be playing. But still, in season, it's all about the playing time, and 
the, those with lesser skills that aren't playing up to their capability, but are getting playing time. They're eventually going to come around, but they're, you know, now we look at the strikeout rate and look at the walk rate. It all kinds kind of comes together, but I'm with you in the draft skills because eventually skills will rise to the top. But as we know, especially in the mixed leagues, you can almost score your league on it, bats and innings pitched. And the, the leaders in those cat, well, and not so much innings pitched, but uh, at, at bats and the leader in at bats usually is the leader in hitting points and rotisserie scoring. You hinted at this a little bit, at least I think this is what you were driving at. You wrote a piece recently looking at max exit velocity, and it really doesn't correlate well to anything. And the conclusion, not to turn your piece into a one-liner, is that it's almost meaningless, which we, we want it to mean something because hitting the ball really hard is fun. Like we were yeah. we were in the seats in the fall league for the Fall Stars game when Vlad Jr. hit a line drive 118 miles an hour or something ridiculous. It was the hardest hit ball I think I've ever seen in a live game before. Uh, but just bring it back to Jess Chisholm as an example, right? We look at his max exit velo and we say, oh, 111.7, that's pretty good. That's a 76 out of over 500 guys who've hit a ball this year. Okay, that's pretty good. Power looks legit. And, oh, the barrel rate's at 14%. Uh, and I'm not pulling barrel rate into the max exit velo argument. Right. I'm just kind of thinking about yeah. how we look at players right now. It's better to have good markers in those areas than to not, but it's not as meaningful, especially this early as we would like it to be. Again, referring more to barrel rate than average exit or max exit velocity. Were you surprised to find that max exit velocity uh, correlated so poorly to the things that actually matter? Um, I don't know if I was surprised. That was what I wasn't sure about because you can go, you can, you can make up a narrative either way. But once I ran the numbers, it was very easy to understand why. And I wanted for, you know, kind of take a little bit, little bit of a step back. I'm kind of in a component exit velocity, ground ball, fly ball, and line drive. It's kind of my, my thing, if you will, the past year or so in that you can't just look at average exit velocity, especially mm-hmm. now with the elevated swings, the relationship between ground ball, fly ball, and line drive exit velocity isn't consistent within players. The plane, the plane of their swing, the, the difference between the three, is big is huge and an uppercut swing will have a higher exit velocity on fly balls and more of a level swing will have a higher exit velocity on ground balls and etc so the thing that sort of got me to it is we're seeing it on you know on tv we're, we're seeing it at max exit velocity we're also seeing it with our colleagues on twitter and they're they're using it as an argument that a player is good and i didn't know i wanted to find out so that's when I ran the correlations and found it just it doesn't correlate to BABIP. It doesn't correlate to uh, uh, power. It barely correlates to exit velocity. So it's cool. It's fun to talk about on TV. It's you know it's sexy, but it's not predictive. And I think that's you know people are looking for more predictive things, and it just isn't. And we just have to accept that. And yeah, on a broadcast, if you want to, if someone wants to say it, I mean, I guess that's fine. That just trickles down and people think it means something, but it just plain doesn't. And now it does make sense because, I mean, it makes sense why it doesn't mean a whole lot. Because first of all, exit velocity on ground balls is barely correlated to the BAPIP on ground balls. Exit velocity on fly balls is actually t- slightly negatively correlated 
In other words, a shorter fly ball has a better chance of being hit, but it's so to, it's it's pretty close to random. In line drives, it is random. It's just where you hit the ball as opposed to how hard you hit it on a line drive. So even exit velocity itself is much more important on power. Average exit velocity on fly balls is where it's at. That's that correlates to power. So even even looking at exit velocity itself, you go to the Statcast, and I'm guilty of this writing a million profiles in the offseason, go to the StatCast page, see a lot of red, and the guy has a low batting average. You say, well, he was unlucky. Look, he hit the ball really hard. It's going to come back. Well, not necessarily because it doesn't correlate very well. Power, yes, but batting average, no. And it's just another example of wanting to use the newfangled data to our advantage. And it's there are things one can use, but we can't make it up just because we want it, we can't, you can't make it up. Yeah. If you're going to use a stat, make sure you understand it before you go out and pretend it means something. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct TV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on direct TV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on direct TV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. Direct TV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECT-TV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply. You know, brought up a, a point a couple weeks ago on, on rates and barrels that I thought might be a better application of barrels and max exit velos. He said, maybe we should think of barrels and barrel rate as game power. If we're thinking about scouting grades, right? You see scouting grades at fan graphs in different places. And we should think of max exit velo maybe as more of the raw power grade. Like you can hit a ball really hard, but if you don't make contact consistently, it doesn't really matter that much, right? If you have a 30-grade hit tool and 70 power, well, you're probably going to strike out 35% of the time. And if you find enough playing time, you would hit 25 home runs over the course of the season, but you're not going to do much else, right? That, that to me, at least seemed like a, a more reasonable way of setting expectations instead of saying, well, Max e- Exit Velo is going to drive us to all these sleepers. We're going to find tons of value. We're going to sort that leaderboard you know, on April 22nd and go, hey, Andrew Young for the Diamondbacks is ninth in max exit velo this season. Therefore, Andrew Young is probably underrated and must be picked up in all leagues, right? I mean, I think some people actually want to use it that way, and that's it's way, way too aggressive. Yeah, well, going back to Eno's point, I'm not even sure. I hate to say I don't agree with Eno because that's usually not a good idea. To not agree with Eno, <laughs> but I don't know that I agree with Eno just because he, he's using it for gate for for maximum power. If if you have a if the if it's, it, you have a, a lot of people have a maximum exit velocity on ground balls or hit ground balls really hard just due to their swing, and if they did it on a pitch that's flatter and you have a flatter swing on a flatter pitch, then you're going to have a higher exit velocity. I don't know that it portends to power. Um, it just, I don't, I, I don't think you can make that leap, but I, in, in our colleague, James Anderson 
my colleague at Rotowire, your friend and you know former colleague at Rotowire when you were with us. I, we talked about this on the on uh, the radio, and he says, you know, when I go to watch a minor league game, are you telling me if some guy has a you know 115 mile average exit uh, sorry you know exit velocity, I should just ignore it? So I'm like, well, no. I he, he kind of got me that I think, and I think maybe you know is and you're kind of implying this as well. You got to be a pretty good hitter to hit a ball that hard. Mm-hmm. So to me, it, it, it I don't know that I think what it does is it says, it says look at this guy deeper. Right. You know, put this guy under the mic. This guy hit a ball this hard. He's going to be really good. Now put him under the microscope and see what else is there. If he's a ground, if he's a line drive ground ball hitter at the launch angle, you know, single digit or, or ten or eleven average launch angle, well, he's not going to have a lot of power. The the average, the exit velocity is coming from the the ground balls and the line drives, et cetera. Maybe maybe it does translate a little bit to batting average, uh, but not necessarily the power. But yeah, so the guys with the high exit velocities, even early in the season, the major leaguers, I think they just deserve uh, a bigger, deeper dive just to find out what you find out. So you are more likely, going to summing this part up, to take the fly ball line drive column on average exit velocity on the stat cast leaderboard, maybe sort by that and start digging in, looking for some players that, that stand oh, yeah. out to you as surprises. Yes. Uh, oh, yes. It, both ways. And I mean, I, yeah. And uh, I'm trying to think, uh, again, it's, in the local, I wish I could think of more examples in Boston players at the top of my head. And at the time, he wasn't a Boston player. But Hunter Renfro is an example of somebody who whose average exit velocity is just, yeah, it's man, it's good. I mean, it's fine. But he's got such an uppercut swing his average exit velocity on fly balls is upper percentile, 80th, 90th, something really high. So if you just sort and look for power and average exit velocity, it doesn't stand out. But when you sort average fly ball exit velocity, it does stand out. Now, these these are all available on StatCast. I mean, you know, know, behind the fourth wall, I, I have a source that I can get it. A little easier than trying to figure out how to do the leaderboards on Statcast. That that, but that's neither here, neither here nor there. But you can get it off the of Statcast uh, with a little bit of uh, clever filtering, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can get all this information. But yeah, for sure, I'm much more into the the fly ball average exit of, of all the components. The fly ball average exit velocity to me is where it's at. I just thought of this example from spring training. There was a, a FanGraphs piece, just a, a short little write-up. It was a good write-up about Brendan Rodgers smoking a ground ball. And, and they weren't trying to say that it, it, it meant something. They were just kind of pointing it out as that sort of oddity that you described where a hitter's swing you know, could be such that he doesn't hit the ball in the air enough to get to the power all the time, but kind of flashes the the high exit velos that you want to see. And one example of that over longer windows, maybe two examples would be Eric Cosmer earlier in his career, just hitting worm burner after worm burner. Like he was an extreme ground baller, but he he'd hit the ball pretty hard. And I think Ryan Zimmerman, uh, four or so years ago before Daniel Murphy got in his ear a little bit and Kevin Long got in his ear and had him start lifting the ball a little bit more. He had the same kind of problem where it was, it was pretty good exit velo, but it was just hitting the ball on the ground way too much. So it is, it's still an ingredient. It's still a thing you can do well, but if you don't do other things well with it, it's just not going to get you that far. Yeah, and not to open up Pandora's box about another topic, but you can defense ground balls, right? Especially a lefty. You mentioned Eric Hosmer. Second baseman just play, forgets shift, just plays deeper into the outfield, increases his range and throws him out. So, yeah, it's really a hard-hit ground ball has a better chance to get through, but in today's defensive uh, setups, 
well, there's more players there. And, you know, again, an argument for another time or a discussion for another time. But that's one reason why hard hit ground balls aren't always a good thing is because it doesn't matter how hard, hit, how hard it's hit, if you can defense it properly. Uh, so it's just, you know, one, one of those things, unfortunately. But, you know, your guy, Victor Robles, you know, you're going to look at his – I say your guy. No, it's not so much your guy. I won't go that far. Let's put <laughs> words in your mouth. But you were you, – is far, you know, where the whole industry is saying, and I said it too, my strategy is not to draft Victor Robles. It wasn't so much against Victor Robles. It was because I didn't want to be forced to draft a steals guy. You know, it, so it could have been anybody it, it, at the time. It just happened to be he was kind of the, the pet of that. But, you know, it just, you can't look at his stat cast levers and say he's going to, he's been unlucky because you combine the speed with the soft hit ground balls and now you've got something. And we talked about this, and I think people know this at this point, but they kind of didn't realize it to begin with. But depending upon where you're looking, a guy who bunts a lot, those bunts get rolled into the average exit velocity. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen a whole lot of bunts with a high exit velocity. So it's one of those things that, again, to to use the data, you really kind of need to understand it, especially because we're, as an analyst, we're, we're talking to people who trust us and aren't going to dig in themselves. They're just trusting us. What we say is, is correct. They're assuming we've done the research. They're assuming we know what we're talking about. And like I said, talking about the other thing, sometimes I, you know, I was not above being wrong with the stabilization points. And I try to make sure I'm right, but maybe someone will prove me wrong in exit velocity doing a different study. And, you know, I'll be, you know, not bold enough, but uh, you know, you know, it won't, I won't, I'll swallow my pride and say, you're right. Kind of like I would did stabilization. I, you know, I hope somebody proves I'm wrong and because it would be real nice if we could have some of this data to use as analytical points and short samples. I was hoping that taking the bunts out for Robles was going to help my argument when I talked about him at PitchCon last year and it didn't, <laughs> it didn't help. It didn't make enough of a dent in the exit velo for me to say it's just the bunting. But I think it, Robles is a great example at the other end of the leaderboard of a player who's been dismissed for reasons that we should not dismiss a player for. At least that is my opinion. That is my belief. And the proof for me was in the results. Like I, I, I said, I kind of got to the point where I was like, I like StatCast, but if you're going to give me a player who hits in the bottom third of the order and he still finds a way to hit 17 home runs and steals 28 bases, it can be blue ink all over the StatCast page, and you can tell me that, that tell, that's an indicator that 17 and 28 might not happen again, but you can't tell me he's a horrible player with those results just because the way he did it with new ways to measure players is not visually appealing. Like I understand those concerns. I, I think those are valid concerns. I think they probably limit the long-term ceiling. I mean, at one point, Acuna versus Victor Robles was an actual argument in prospect circles seeing how that one has played out maybe it was obvious to people who really know prospects that it was a Cunha all along but just the fact that they were even next to each other on some lists at one point or even side by side in a, in a debate like okay like we're, we're talking about a guy that does have a lot of talent and was young for the level everywhere he played young when he arrived in the big leagues you know had an injury I think in 2018 that kept him from getting more time with the Nats then um, so I just think for me, it's like, I, if I'm not going to dismiss a player with horrible stat cast numbers, I can't automatically go all in on a player with great stat cast numbers. 
Right. And I think the other thing, and I, maybe people out there, you know, w- w- ready to call me out on this because, you know, looking to be wrong, looking at average eggs, average velocity on ground balls, it, you can't throw every single player into that same soup. It's different for fast players and it's different for slow players, right? You, it doesn't matter how, how, uh, how, you know, it, it, Jesus Aguiar hits a ground ball slow. He's going to get thrown out, right? Victor Robles hits a ground ball slow. He's going to beat it out. It, you know, and if they both hit it hard, it depends on the, how their defense. So I think the next level, if I'm going to look at component average exit velocities, now I have to look at it on different players, you know, or different types of players, especially with ground balls. Cause I think you, I think you find if we were to segregate players into different classifications, the average exit velocity on ground balls would matter. It would be a huge correlation for BABIP on certain in whether it be sprint speed, however you want to classify the players. I think there'd be a lot more um, good things going on there. And intuitively that's, what's going to help Robles. If you if you put his average exit velocity on ground balls in a in a group of fast players, we, it may it may be inversely proportional that the slower the ground ball, the better, because you know better chance of beating it out. But I think I think then we'd find a higher correlation. There's just only so many hours in a day, and uh, I can't yet afford a research staff. So, but I, I do think that's one thing about Robles and other players of that ilk. You can't even you can't even. Just ground ball exit velocity isn't enough. You need to go to the next level and probably the next level after that. Thinking about the average exit velocity on, on flies and, and liners for a moment, when does that start to get your attention? Because if you you look at qualified hitters, of course, you're always going to miss some guys that have barely played. I'm always tempted to lower the playing time threshold with the batted ball events to an absolute minimum just because I want to know like who even in a little, little bit of playing time is doing something interesting. I, I kind of want those prompts to take the deeper dive. I don't want to, again, I don't want to just pull it up and go, yeah, Tyrone Taylor, picking him up. You got to think about who the player is. How is he going to play? What else is in the profile? But to see him, you know, high up on that leaderboard. Okay, that that's pretty interesting. And I, I've seen him pop on some stat cast leaderboards in very small samples in the past. Uh, Andrew Young, who I mentioned earlier, right? It's only three batted ball events. So I, that, I know that's not enough to to make an actual decision. But when do we have enough batted ball events to start to feel pretty confident in what we're seeing from a fly ball and line drive exit velocity perspective? So yeah, it's kind of, I don't say a two-part answer here, but when I do the studies to, f- to figure out correlations, I don't know the exact number, but um, it, it's, it's a, a decent number of batted ball events before I can say this correlates, this correlates, that doesn't correlate. But, and this goes back to the stabilization points and uh, as well, it's it's all about probability. And you just, you want the decision to have a, a greater than 50% probability of being correct or, you know, significant, that's not even these words significantly, but you want it to be greater than 50%. You know, you don't want it to be a completely random decision. And that's when the the small samples come into play. Is all right, Tyrone Taylor. He okay. It's only been three fly balls, but they've all been hit with a certain exit velocity. It, well, I don't know. Maybe there's a better than fifty percent chance because it's been only been three, but yet they've all been so hard that he is going to be a guy who's going to display power. Or, or you know, if even back in the going back to the strikeout rate. 
uh, you know, okay, so it's only four, three or four weeks, whatever we are, three or four weeks into the season. He is striking out less. All right. I guess the probability is that maybe he has improved his contact. I just don't think we can put the the number on it like we were trying to do before and then compare, you know, this. The problem is when you, you put numbers on two different people and now you compare those two different people. I don't think we can go that far. But I think when you look at an individual basis, you need to look at the short sample and say, well, you know what? Maybe there's a better than 50% chance that this new skill is real and make your decisions accordingly. I think we were just getting too quanti- quantitative with some of this stuff. And even, even you know, with the velocities of loss that we're talking about, I think we can get too quantitative. We still have to keep it qualitative and therefore use other means of analysis uh, to kind of make it to, to get the big picture. I know it's been a while since you've seen a movie in a theater. It's something we've joked about over the years on <laughs> podcasts we've hosted together. Well, you can say that about anybody now, right? Radio. Well, yeah. I mean, for yeah, for a lot of people, it's been more than a year, right? But it's. Uh, I know you're the last movie at the time we've talked about it last. The last movie you'd seen in the theater was Tommy Boy. I assume that has not changed. That has not changed. So I, I think if you remember in Tommy Boy, there's the scene <laughs> with the the guarantee on the box for the brake pads. Yeah, and. And Tommy, you know, says, if you want me to take a dump in a box and mark it guaranteed, I will. I've got spare time. Uh, a little crude, but uh, relevant here because I, I do think that whole scene just drives the idea that the guy that wants the guarantee on the box says his customers need that calling out to him, telling him that yeah. everything's going to be okay. I think that's sort of how we use very small amounts of data. I think we try and, and use that as a, a justification and a security blanket for the leaps that we're taking in our analysis. I think that's pretty consistent across the industry. I think we're generally all trying to do that in our own ways. No, you're right. And I think part of it is, well, it's not, you know, I mean, the old process over outcomes, my process, we can, we can, in our our heads, we can, we can sleep at night saying the process was right. And I think we're saying maybe the process wasn't as right as we thought it was. So and unfortunately, the answer might be there is no right process, in which case we can go to sleep now saying, well, there is no right process. You know, I guess I have to be luckier, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But um, it's yeah, we just you can't you can't rely on something that's not there. And it's tough because, like, like you say, we want it to be there. We want to be confident in our decisions. And sometimes there's just nothing there to hang your hat on. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. 
Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. So I wanted to ask you a question that I'm probably going to ask everybody I talk to for the next few weeks. It's early enough where it's still a fun question because we all would change something or a couple of somethings about our drafts if we had a little more information or a little more time. We got another right. little peek at some players. So if I gave you two draft season mulligans and said you could use one on a hitter and one on a pitcher that you would approach differently. And we'll just say that like, these guys got to be healthy. It's not, oh, I don't want this guy because he got hurt, right? Tatis because he got hurt. A mulligan right, on him. Right. That's, that's, that's not interesting, right? Like he's, he's just hurt. It's not his fault. Uh, who would your mulligans be based on what has happened so far or things you've learned through these first few weeks? All right, so the the first well, the first one I'll it, 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 a go pitcher, and I'll say Brad Keller, and I know he's not a a star, but the way I built my staff was I waited on pitching, figuring some guys like Brad Keller would take the next step, and he thus far hasn't, and I tweeted this out the other day as well is that is he's going to be the guy where when he's on your bench, he goes out and throws five innings against the angels and, and almost shuts them out. And then when you put him in the lineup the next week, cause he's got a weaker Tampa offense, they, they crush him. So he's got always going to be on your bench when he does well. And in your lineup, when he, uh, when he gets crushed, I had him in my lineup the whole time. And that's one of the things is and I'm kind of aggressive in that. I don't want to miss the good stuff to equal or to balance the bad stuff. I just don't think Keller has earned that right. I should be, I should bench him until he proves he's fine. Cause I don't know there's going to be enough good stuff to balance the bad stuff. I get too much bad stuff and I'm in a hole. So I think um, he's kind of a double whammy to me just cause I trusted him. And now I trust him too much not to take him out. <laughs> um, it's just, it's just one of those things. The hitter. I'm, I don't know. Well, I'm going to, well, whatever. The first guy, one of the first guys you're asking kind of break, not so much break the rule. The mulligan I would have is I would not go into a draft saying I can wait on second baseman because I know I can draft two of the three of Colton Wong, who's hurt, so he breaks your rule, Cesar Hernandez and Jonathan Scope. Uh, I would always end up with two of those three. And Maybe Hernandez bounces back. Maybe I, I, I could be too optimistic at this point in, in scope. But I would pass on second baseman earlier, and I would take players out of the positions. But I would I would just not worry about a second baseman because I was going to get two of those three, and I was going to be fine. I'd be able to play the one with a good matchup, play the one that's hot that week. And who knows? Maybe Colton Wong comes back, and at least for three-quarters of the season, I'm fine. But I think that was to pigeonhole myself – into that and potentially passing up on, I don't know, Brandon Law, Brandon Lyle, uh, you know, other second baseman along the way that I passed on because of this. So the mulligan would be not going into a draft 
just predisposed to get two of those three. Yeah, I think that's kind of interesting just because everybody has, everyone seems to have, this is how I'm speaking right now, everyone seems to have, it appears that, we be, we might think that like you, you know it's always it's always conditional it has to be because we're not really speaking in certainties it does seem to me that people have some broader tendencies when they approach drafts and auctions and that can lead them to miss out on players they might otherwise like you mentioned you know Brandon Lau maybe he's a guy that you you had him ranked in a spot where you were comfortable taking him in whatever the fifth sixth round but because of your overarching mindset your strategy with that position. You missed out on him. That happened to me with Corbin Burns. And I'm talking to yeah. you wearing a Brewer's hat and a Brewer's hoodie. <laughs> and I watch Corbin Burns all the time. I, I thought Corbin Burns was going to be good this year. And he, I'm sure he's going to be really good this year. And obviously, he's not going to be this good all year. But the main reason, as I kind of retrace my steps, I'm like, wait, why don't I have Burns? Of all people, I should have too much Burns. I'm a Brewer's fan. Right. I don't have him because a lot of the time when I was drafting, that group of pitchers, for me, I had him right around, I think he was 21st on my last set of rankings. It was like Lance Lynn and Barrios and Burns and Zach Plesak. It ended up being a group that I don't have at all because I either had two aces before then or I had either got an ace early and then was still chasing some bats. And it just it never quite worked out with the way I wanted to get the early rounds put together for me to be in a position to take Burns when he was the best available pitcher in my queue. I just wasn't taking a pitcher in that spot in general. And I, I, I'm really frustrated by that. I mean, clearly I had him in the wrong group. Like that, that the solution in this case was, well, if you had grouped Corbin Burns with Tyler Glass now, then you would have had a shot at getting Corbin Burns on more of your teams. But because you ranked him too low, you missed because you ranked him in a dead spot. Yes and no. I mean, yes, that's the answer. But it was based on data at the time. There was a reason why you had Burns in that area and people that took the leap of faith on Burns and draft him a little bit earlier, the way I look at it, and I think it's true, they, they're overly aggressive. I mean, they got, they got Burns right, but they probably got others wrong because that was their mindset. You maybe got Burns wrong, but you probably got more, more, more players right using that same process. The thing that, you know, the whole thing with Hernandez and Wong, the second baseman in general, I knew this, I know this is a mistake of mine. I know this is a huge, huge, you know, just just error in, in, my, in my approach. And I thought I kind of fixed it in 2020. Just, you know, we didn't have a whole season to find out, but I felt more comfortable. It was really comfortable coming into the season because I was going to, I mean, I wasn't using my numbers. I was using group projections a little bit to, to get an overall rank for the feel of things. And I just, I thought I corrected a bunch of errors, but yet I convinced myself, no, you know what? I, I'm this one I'm right on because looking at the second base pool, it's not very top heavy. It's very deep. It, this is the right, this is the one exception I can make because I can't get burned. <laughs> oh, well. I wonder if in that case, there's a common thread for the second baseman that you mentioned. It's that the real baseball, the the market for those players has been underwhelming. Those are guys in the case of, of Scope, you know, who's non-tendered. Uh, Cesar Hernandez, who's playing on a one-year deal for, for $5 million. Colton yeah. Wong, also, even though he's a gold glove winning second baseman who gets on base. like I, I think you can maybe see the risk in them that comes from the way Major League teams treat them, even though projections-wise, they do come out as consistently undervalued players. 
I think I think what the bit. Well, yeah, yes, you're right. But I think the other the, the, in my mind, I don't know. I'm sure, it's my mind. I think this is the reality because Major League downgraded them a bit. So did Fantasy, and therefore they were cheap. They were available because in my mind, uh, you know, and actually by the end of it, by by the time drafts towards in the last week in March. Colton Wong was going 12th, 13th, 14th round. He he had risen and he still may perform, you know, your fan, the team, you're kind of hoping he comes back and and, and does that sort of thing. Uh, Hernandez never, never caught on. Scope really never caught on. But I think fantasy-wise, it kind of followed suit. They dovetailed. And the one reason I like the strategy so much is they were available so late. They were available for so, I mean, Hernandez may be a 20th rounder. I maybe had him as a 14th or 15th rounder. So, you know, there's the profit and Jonathan Scope as well. So, yes, they're right now. Instead of seeing the risk, I saw the buying potential because they were so cheap. I kind of I, I, I didn't I didn't see the risk or I'm I don't know, uh, uh, rationalizing the risk. And it's the market and Caesar Hannah is an aging veteran. It's not so much. He's not good anymore, but. You know they they don't want to they don't want to pay him because they can get somebody cheaper uh, and they don't care anyway or, you know something something you know they don't care if he's all that good. I mean look what the Reds are doing at shortstop. I know they put Suarez there and uh, since that opening game he hasn't been terrible. But you know financially teams don't want to pay for these guys, but they're actually probably pretty good. So yeah, I instead of seeing the risk, I turned it around, rationalized in my head. And I, you know, I, I that 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 the reason they're going so late is other reasons and other than the risk, which was a mistake. Hernandez, I'm probably overly optimistic on. He's been showing signs of of decline uh, the past few years, and maybe it's my over reliance on being able to draw a walk will eventually translate into improving numbers. I know walks don't matter for fantasy. This, you know, at least directly unless we're in an OBP league, but for years they did matter as far as finding players that were going to turn things around. Maybe that's not as important anymore just because of the way the games play now. One of the questions I had for you is a more of a, a team analysis sort of question, but it applies mm. to individual decisions that we have to make when you're playing pitching matchups early in the season. And really, I guess this could apply to any point, but we're living in the early part of the season right now. What factors are you looking at? What changes your mind about teams that you're willing to comfortably throw pitchers against? This came up last night. Drew, who I think listens to the Rotowire shows and, and the athletic shows, yeah. basically said, I think I would throw just about anybody against the Yankees right now. And, and based on what they've done so far, I understand how you reach that conclusion, right? They're hitting 205, 296, 334 as a team. They are, they've played poorly to this point. My counter argument to that was a quick one of, You'd throw Logan Allen against the Yankees right now, down a couple ticks with his fastball last time out, right? I mean, like the types of guys that you would actually throw out there, I don't think he goes far down with the Yankees as you might. But what matters to you this early? I mean, I guess another example could be the Padres without Tatis. Like they're still a good lineup, but they're a little less scary when he was down with the shoulder injury. What moves the needle for you this early as it pertains to matchups for pitchers? Yeah, things things come things out things always end up in a circle, right? We're talking st- stabilization points. I want. I have not done this yet. I should do this. I, sh- I should have done this 20 years ago. We talk about it for players. I want to know the same thing for teams. I want to know when a team's WOBA, when a team's strikeout percent is 
such that you can trust that it's you know not real enough that you can stream it against. And I don't know, I don't know the numbers. And again, I should. I keep saying I'm going to do this study, and then work gets in the way, even though this is work. Um, so it, it, it's it's tough. I mean, I'm trying again. Here we go again with another Boston example. Last year, early on, the Red Sox could not hit a lefty for the life of them. And actually, last year they didn't hit all season long. But you knew maybe this is more 2019. You knew that eventually they would. You look at all their right-handed hitters. But, you know, the numbers say play a lefty, but, you know, they're due or whatever. So you kind of look at the same way with the Yankees now. You mentioned how poor they're hitting. But they've got a, they've got a 251 batting average and balls in play. You know that team BABIP is not going to stay that low. It's they're they're not that bad, but yet their their home run percent is really really low. So you know you can't be that unlucky with home run per fly ball. They're just just not hitting homers. So eh, maybe maybe I'm a little bit uh, I, maybe I do stream against them. So I, I I do try to look at a granular level if a team's striking out. Now the Yankees are only striking out twenty four percent. I say only twenty four percent of the time. That seems so weird. We have to readjust our, our baseline. The league average is 24 and a half. So they're actually below average striking out. So to me, that's that's a scary team. I'm not I'm not going to stream a Logan Allen against the Yankees, but a good pitcher who in the past maybe I was good, I'd bench against them. I'm not benching decent pitchers against the Yankees that I may have a few years ago. Uh, even even last year, but I'm not going to stream a Logan Allen either. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's not exactly right to say they're due and, you know, it'll be against Logan Allen, but there is a little bit of that. You know that the BABIP's going to come up. But to answer the question as far as how long into the season, I don't know. And I and, and because I'm not sure anybody knows because I you can't believe other people haven't thought of this. And if there was an answer, we both know it, you know? <laughs> so, and then when you get even more granular, Logan Allen's a lefty. So how have the Yankees done against lefties? Well, you know that there's, I think 30, I think it's 28%. 28% of, of uh, at-bats are against left-handed pitching. So the, you take short data and only 30% of that data is against lefty pitching anyway. So can you even judge it on that regard? So it's even different versus lefties and righties. I don't know why, you know, why we, we even try to do this sometimes, but we do and that we, we, we have to. But I'll look at the strikeout rate of a team and primarily because it's a category in fantasy. And if the pitcher can get strikeouts, normally good things will happen the rest of the game. And that's kind of my number one judge. And even strikeout rates aren't aren't stable. There are teams, you know, right now, uh, let's if we sort by strikeout rate, uh, well, the Astros are always, you know, the Padres, the Mets. Some of these teams are going to be striking out more as the season goes. The Royals only have a 22.5% strikeout rate. Have to believe that's going to go up a little bit over the course of the season. Um, although, you know, they do have an improved, oh, well, once Montessi comes back, of course it's going to go up. What am I saying? <laughs> but um, it just, uh, I, I will use that as the, when I'm streaming specifically, I'm more comfortable streaming against teams that strike out. A, you, you know, at least you get strikeout points, but if you are striking out hitters, there is a better chance that the, the game outcome is okay. 
Yeah, it's really interesting to me because the teams that are striking out the most right now in order, the Brewers, the Rangers, the Cubs, the Tigers, the Orioles, the Mariners, and the Phillies, I want to stream against all of them with only a couple exceptions. I don't really stream against the Phillies in Philly because the park is so hitter-friendly, so that seems pretty risky, so I don't mess around too much there. And then I always want to keep an eye, at least in daily, on what's happening at Wrigley. Got a weekly decision to make. You're probably not going to know what way the wind's going to blow at Wrigley you know, three, four, five days from now. Uh, but I do think you can generally go at the Cubs, at least until things change a little bit there. I think sort of like the Yankees, they're going to be better than they've been so far, not to the same magnitude. The Yankees, I'm not a Yankees apologist. I'm not a Yankees fan. I, I said this earlier. The Yankees could lose have losing seasons every year for 200 years, and I'd be happy about that. But that's a good team. That's the same core that year over year for the last five years, they've been a top five offense in terms of WRC+. They didn't age that much in a year where suddenly they're a bottom five offense. They're, they're bas- you, you want to tell me their new baseline is top 10 instead of top five? Okay, we can have a conversation about that. But they're not a bad team. It's just people are panicking because it's 6-11 and 11 through the first 17 games. They would care so much less if they were 6-11 and 11 for their first 17 games in July. Oh, that's true. No, absolutely. Now, you know, look again, so granular looking at the Cubs, we'll get, you know, the, the Yankees point in a sec, but so the Cubs are striking out 27% of the time, but they're also walking 10.2% of the time. And I think they've got the lowest BABIP in the league. So I, to me, that's a team that's just organically going to get, well, the second lowest Indians are lower. So, you know, regression doesn't punch a time clock, but you know, it's a better offense than they're showing. But, you know, the thing, the thing with the Yankees and, you know, if, if so you take a look at Stanton and Judge and if everybody had hit one more home run, which in a vacuum, each individual player, it's one home run. Why not? When you do that for eight or nine players and now the teams hit nine or ten more, they're suddenly where they should be. But, you know, what are the chances that all, you know, all nine can't be one home run unlucky, et cetera. But still, they're not that far off. I mean, I'm more concerned with a with a Glaber Torres, although I've been always being a bit concerned with his power. But I didn't expect to have no homers at this point of the season, um, you know, than than you know than than anything else. But um, yeah, Logan Allen is a sit, but you know, a mid road, you know, Brad Keller, <laughs> Brad Keller is a sit, but you know the uh, you know Danny Duffy, I'd start. At this point, something like that. Yeah, Duffy. I mean, he looks a little better. He's got the velo back up to where it was a few years ago, too. So that that's the sort of thing I am looking at early. If a pitcher has an extra tick or even two extra ticks, has a new pitch, has changed the pitch mix, those types of things do actually matter for me really yes. early when we're looking at some some things that can change very quickly. Uh, I think pitching can change faster than hitting because of the, the different ways a pitcher can significantly increase or decrease his own value, right? I mean, a couple miles per hour is a big deal in either direction. And and a new pitch basically means you've got a new pitcher because everything else is going to play a little bit differently. Right. Yeah. I mean, this topic for you know, your next guest probably because it's a great topic, but you're right. Spin rate and the spin rate on the, on the right pitches, you know, you don't care about spin rate on a changeup but the spin rate on the right pitchers also matters and those can be measured. So if you, if you would ask the question, what, what can you use in a short sample? My answer would have been pitchers. You can, like you're saying, you can uh, get this ratio. Now the question always is with pitching, will it be sustained? So that's sort of the thing. Now, if, if, if a pitcher, if a pitcher's velocity and spin rate is up now, 
I, that's what I care right now in a daily, in a, in a daily scenario, a DFS, whatever, I care about that right now. I don't know about for the course of the season, especially with all the innings and how that's all going to work out, but it's something to keep an eye on, but sure. I make short sample decisions on pitching all the time. I'm trying to think um, uh, Anthony Desclafani a couple years ago, picked up some velocity early and he has continued to sustain it. Now I'm hoping that he can, now that he's in San Francisco, it manifests into a, uh, a, a picture we all thought he would be, but the, yeah, for sure. And that's one of the things that got me onto Keller was it wasn't a Likas Giolito type change, but his spin was up and he was throwing a new pitch. And I thought the same kind of things might happen. You know, sometimes all we hear about are the changes that work out. You mentioned Eric Hosmer with the, with the lift, Daniel Murphy, you know, some people change their swings and it doesn't work out. So some people change pitch mixes and it doesn't work out. Yeah, and definitely uh, easy to lose those players or or to not recall them as quickly because <laughs> it, it's there. If you look, oh, he tried to change and he couldn't yeah. command the slider. So that new slider didn't really help him all that much. Those types of things happen actually pretty often. Well, Todd, I really appreciate the time today. I think I said 40 minutes and we've got almost a full hour here. I had a great time catching up with you. Uh, before you go, yeah. uh, let our listeners again know where they can find all your work. Uh, yeah, I wish I wish I had better answers to, uh, to answer the stabilization questions, but we just don't have it. Mastersball.com remains the uh, remains the mothership. Uh, still have my my platinum subscription and knock on wood. Uh, I'm I'm working on my DFS engine, rolling that back out again. So I'm going to start doing some daily stuff with DFS on the site. Uh, Rotowire, as you mentioned, kind of uh, uh, work there with the podcast and doing the the, the weekly rankings and. Behind the scenes more at this point, behind the scenes. Oh, no, Daily Notes at ESPN is very much in front of the scenes. Uh, uh, so writing their Daily Notes with, um, uh, I was going to say Paul Sporer, but Paul's no longer with us. We replaced him with some guy named Derek Hardy. And then uh, some, some of you may have heard of. And Michael <laughs> Mike Sheets. Mike Sheets also helps me on the, uh, helps out on the day. He actually, he's been running Daily Notes longer than I have. And you were kind enough to mention Sirius. They let me on over the weekend. Uh, I do the Sunday show with Jeff, Jeff Erickson. That's at 1 p.m. Eastern. That that doesn't change. And you mentioned Clay. So Clay and I do the Saturday show. And uh, check out the Twitter feed. We'll tweet out the time. If it is always 7 p.m., maybe it will be at this point. Then it's always 7. But it's, uh, it, like, it is kind of cool. To be on the uh, to be on the network. Oh yeah, it's it's a really cool thing. Glad you guys have that opportunity. And again, really appreciate all the time. Be sure to check out Todd's work there. Keep an eye on his Twitter feed at Todd Zola. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. We are back with you with the Waiver Pod on Sunday. Mm-hmm.